This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Mark Flallow on behalf of Mitchell Whitfield and myself. Thank you so much for taking a listen to this podcast. Do us a little favor if you would. If you love the show, give us a five-star review, and don't forget to follow us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. We appreciate it, and we love doing the show for you guys. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Welcome back to Your Tech Report. We are back on Your Tech Report. Thank you guys so much for being involved. If you want to get involved, we give you so many ways to do that. Our email address is contact at yourtechreport.com. On all our social media, it is at Your Tech Report. Mitchell, why you yes, so Mark. Uh, well, you know, I, I tend to get a little giddy sometimes. Uh, this this interview is kind of special for a bunch of reasons, but to give it a little bit of context, people that listen to the radio show every week or that have checked out the YouTube videos, obviously we talk about technology. I'm a big gamer. You know, when the new consoles came out, I got all excited. So everyone knows that I'm a gamer. We talked about PC, Xbox, Nintendo, so all that stuff. What people may not know is that I'm also a board gamer. And I've, I don't think I've ever fallen for a hobby as hard as I've fallen for board gaming. And a lot of that is the fault of and can be credited to our next guest. And, you know, obviously the pandemic has made things challenging for a lot of people in a lot of different ways, a lot of hardships, but also for board gaming especially, it's been hard to get your gaming group to the table. So we've had to find other ways to sort of get together and keep that social aspect, which is I think what drew me to gaming, uh, together. So we've been using technology, you know, the computer versions, you know, online versions of games, digitized, right? Digitized versions of games. And it started making me thinking, I wonder how technology has, you know, had that domino effect sort of on the game as a whole, not just as a gamer, but for game designers, for game publishers, how technology is affected. So if we're talking about gaming, uh, playing, designing, publishing, in my opinion, there's only one person you can really talk to. So our next guest is not only one of the top game designers in the world, Uh, one of the top board game publishers in the industry. His latest game, Red Rising, right now will be hitting tables, I believe, in the next few weeks. And if all this wasn't enough, uh, his social media presence, both through the uh, uh, Facebook, Facebook Live videos and his YouTube videos, have made him one of the great ambassadors of the hobby as well. So you put all these things together... He's also the man behind Stonemeyer Games. He is Jamie Stegmeyer. Jamie, wow, did you get us off from that intro? Because I'm, woo, I'm out of breath. I don't know where to go from here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I think that's one of the nicest and most detailed introductions I've, I've ever heard. So thank you so much for, for that preamble. Have you ever been introduced? I, I've, I've never heard Mitchell introduce somebody by blaming them for something first, right off the bat. And that was the first thing I got. I'm like, oh, he's really he's blaming his hobby on you. That's a way to welcome a guest. I, I take that as a compliment, though. I, I hear that from time to time. Whenever someone says, like, I discovered your game and now I love games. I spent so much money on other games. I love to hear that. That's wonderful I, for me. It could have been worse. I, I, I could have called Jamie a gateway drug, which would have been highly inappropriate, <laughs> although highly accurate. It would have been highly inappropriate. But uh, believe me, Jamie, there's a lot more lot more blame to come. We're going to be covering a lot of stuff today, uh, including how I use you as an excuse to buy games. We'll go into that later. But before we start, um, for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, that aren't familiar with Stonemeyer Games, uh, talk a little bit about how you got started in the industry and how uh, Stonemeyer came to be. 
Yeah, yeah. I guess a very brief version of it is I've been playing games and designing games for fun my entire life. And then when Kickstarter started to take off, I took this hobby of mine of designing games and my love for for Kickstarter in particular and entrepreneurship to, to put a game called Viticulture on Kickstarter. And that launched uh, the next four years of uh, what, what started as a hobby, then became my full-time job running Stillmeyer Games here in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, focused on Kickstarter. And then after that, I moved away from Kickstarter and just grew the company from there. We now have three full-time employees. So we're still very small, three full-time employees, um, still based in St. Louis. And uh, we now have 11 games in our lineup, including probably the most popular game that people may have heard of is Wingspan, which is our, our best-selling best-selling game, which is one that I did not design. So I'm both a designer and a publisher of games from other designers as well. Jamie, you know, you, you talk about Kickstarter being your, you know, your roots when it comes to yeah. this industry. It's interesting because, you know, Kickstarter in its just in its existence uh, means that you're going to get a lot of feedback while you're in the production phase or going into the production phase. Whereas when you're producing something on your own, you're not getting all that kind of feedback. Do you find there's a stark contrast between having all that feedback while you're trying to do something? Is that distracting or is it making sure that when it does come to market, it's absolutely what people want? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of the things I miss a little bit about Kickstarter because uh, when you have that many eyes on a project, when you've already spent a lot of time developing it, you can uh, those eyes can definitely help identify some things that maybe you missed. But the only maybe major difference now is that I have a little bit more control over who I who I ask to put their eyes on the project. So we still have plenty of playtesters that playtest our games uh, around the world and, and give us feedback on how the game is is coming along. I still have plenty of people that I go to for, for proofreading and for translations. And a, a lot of eyes still come to the project, but I, I just have a little bit more control over who, whose eyes those are now. Um, yeah, so I do miss that, but I, I still get it in, in some respect. You know what? I, I was going to jump into our technology part of this, but you know what? You got me started on Kickstarter, and I know you have a lot of strong feelings and a really strong history and also advising other companies, businesses, individuals on how to use, how to properly use Kickstarter. Keeping that in mind, it, do you think that, and I'm, I'm going to be careful how I word this to make sure I'm respectful of the industry and the people that still use it a lot. Do you think not necessarily the Kickstarter is not being abused but being misused a little bit now because what started as a way to let smaller either individuals or companies actually get that funding that they need to create a game. I almost feel like it's being made, it's being used differently now by companies that have a ton of money that could totally put out a game without using it, but still use the platform for every game they do. Have we seen a shift in how it's used rather than how it was intended to be used? I definitely think the 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 paradigm has shifted quite a bit over the last uh, 10 years since Kickstarter started. I think it's been around for maybe 12 years total. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, I, I don't begrudge a, a creator for using Kickstarter to, to raise those funds because I don't know what their cash flow actually looks like. There right. are big companies that maybe their cash flow is pretty tight right now. I don't know. Um, and they use Kickstarter to, to build community around the project to, like Mark said, to, to improve the product right. and, uh, and to gauge demand for that first print run. That, that first print run is always a mystery. You know what, Jamie? That makes a lot of sense because, and listen, for me, it's a great way to get, it's, and for everyone, it's a great way to get excited about games. I don't like having to wait two years for a game to come out, but I sure do like the excitement and feeling like, you know, everyone is a part of it. And I think in that way, that community aspect, it's been incredible. Now, I want to I make that jump into technology because as you said, you are in one of the great 
cities in the country. St. Louis, beautiful city. It's also rich. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, rich in history with baseball, of course, the Cardinals. And I'm, I'm going to make a reference and I hope you don't get upset because it has to do with your arch rival Chicago Cubs. And, and this is something we sort of talked about before we, you know, when we were emailing about doing this interview, I sort of mentioned this to you. Um, and the analogy was, you know, baseball fans can be incredibly proprietary, very purist oriented, just like board gamers can do the, do the same thing. And I remember when the Chicago Cubs were going to go to night games, they were going to light a Wrigley Field at night and the, the purists were like, no, and baseball will never be the same, don't you? And the baseball gods would come down and rain hell. So people got really upset about it. And I, and I think there are also purists in the board game area that when you mention technology, they get all up in arms because they're used to their analog experience, that human to human experience. Experience. How do you feel about tech? And technology has entered every aspect. And we're going to talk about all of them, but I think it, it can be a really wonderful tool. How, what is your take on technology and how it's sort of infiltrated the hobby on a whole? Well, before the pandemic, well, I guess we'll probably talk about the pandemic in a minute. Sure, that has sure. had a huge impact on technology. Before the pandemic, I started to see technology creep into the, into the world of board gaming through um, app-assisted tabletop games. For example, there's a great game from, from Fantasy Flight uh, called uh, Journeys in Middle-Earth. Uh, have you played this game? I have played this game, yeah. yes. So it is a cooperative game where you're working together with other players and there's an app that helps you play the game. And the app uh, makes the game a lot easier to play because it, it tracks things that would otherwise be arduous to keep track of. It guides you through the rules. It helps you set up each scenario on a kind of a step-by-step -step basis. So while that wouldn't be great for every game, I think it's great for that game. It's fantastic for that game. And so I love when uh, when designers have seen a need that technology can solve in a game, um, an issue that, that technology can solve, and they use technology for that purpose. I don't think that's always the case, but in some games, it, it really helps. Right. And in situations like that, also, I think you, it gives you sort of endless possibilities to add content because one of the things about yeah. board games, sort of like when Steve Jobs was giving the, you know, was presenting the iPhone for the first time and talked about the advantage of not having fixed keys on a keypad, you can make the screen whatever you want. And I think that applies to this in that you can add almost unlimited content using that app, if it's an app-assisted game, to keep the game fresh for players for years to come. So I think that's another advantage that sort of, it's another victory. Um, Let's let's take it, of course, to your side as, you know, if you I keep on making you switch your hats as a designer, publisher, as a gamer, but as a designer, um, did tech, whether it's, you know, creating something that's app assisted or using technology in general, has there been an aspect that sort of affects the way you approach your design of a game where it's like, huh, I have this ability to do now, you know, app assisted or not. Does it change the way you approach a design these days? Well, so far, I, I have, both as, as a designer and as a publisher, I've stayed away from app-assisted games in particular. There's, there's plenty of technology that I use to create any game. Um, InDesign is my go-to program for prototyping. That, uh, that, that's huge. There's all types of apps and programs that I use to keep track of ideas and, and uh, project management, things like that. Um, but for the games themselves, so the game design itself, I have generally stayed away from apps because it is something that I, I'm not a developer, I'm not a programmer, and so it is then out of my control as to how long it takes to get that aspect of the game ready. And so I might fully design a game. And then if I have to then hand it off to a developer to, to create some aspect of the game and the developer takes two years to do it, then I'm just sitting on a game that I could have otherwise published. So, so far I've kind of designed around that and not 
leaned into app-assisted games and instead turned to occasionally to third-party app developers after the game comes out. For example, for our Between Two Castles game, um, scoring takes a little bit, a long time in Between Two Castles. Right. And there's a developer who created a, a, an augmented reality scoring app where you just point your camera at your, your collection of tiles on the table. Oh, that's cool. And it sees everything and just pops up the score for you. And he did that after we created the game. And so it didn't delay the game at all, but still helps people who own the game. Yeah. What, go ahead, what, are your, what are your thoughts? And, and, you know, this will kind of bring us into the pandemic. What are your thoughts on digitizing the entire game in you know, its entirety? You know, and, and, yeah. and the reason I say that pandemic is going to kind of come into play here is because I think before the pandemic, I would be, have been against this. You know, I've played the monopolies of the world and the various games on a phone and it nothing replicates that experience of being with human beings and having that traditional gameplay enter a situation where we physically can't do that with our friends. We can do it with our close family. So suddenly my perception is like, well, maybe maybe this is an opportunity for my kids to actually interact with their friends if they're not here. So maybe I'm not so against it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there are two steps to it. One, it, one is even before the pandemic, I uh, definitely started to embrace the idea of digital ports of our tabletop games. Uh, we did this for Scythe. We did it for Wingspan. We did it for Charterstone, Viticulture. Um, and the, the main reason that I embrace this is because I saw it as an opportunity for people to, to really to get people's foot in the door so that maybe they'll try the, t the full tabletop version and maybe not. It's basically, it's a, it's a I saw it as a learning tool because apps, I think, are much better at teaching people how to play games than a game with like size with a 32 page rule book that you have to go through and, and spend a lot of time learning. The app teaches you how to play. So even before the pandemic, I was kind of I was excited about that. Um, Post-pandemic, we can branch out a lot here, but I have embraced platforms that involve human involvement a lot more. There's a platform called Board Game Arena that is entirely human-based. It's, it's intelligent. It knows what the game pieces are. It knows the rules to the game, but there's no AI. You can't play against the AI. You, you have to play against other humans. And that has, for me as a gamer, has been a, a, a huge blessing during the pandemic because I can get together with friends and still have game nights virtually. It's not the same, like you said, Mark, not the same, but at least I get those those fun social interactions over games using board gamer. It's the best of both worlds, really. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I don't know, Jamie, if you have the same sort of challenges, it's like it almost made me want to create something different, but we can tell that later, uh, where, you know, you have your Zoom open, right? And um, right. we use we use a lot of, we use Tabletopia a lot. And uh, we've been yeah. playing a lot of games on Tabletopia. I think actually yeah. we played, we played uh, I believe we played Tapestry, another, you know, oh, paying cool. homage to you. We played Tapestry on Tabletopia. And, you know, trying to manage, it's sort of, and it really is a learning curve. It's learning a new way to play right. games and it sort of opens you up in the future to, okay, this isn't just for the pandemic. This is for moving on. If we can't all be together, this is the next best thing. So we sit there, we have the Zoom window open here. We have Tabletopia open here. And I'm always asking, wait, how do I control the camera? I can't see your, I can't see your tableau. How do I spring? And I'm trying to turn the table around so I can look. And you realize, yeah. of course, there are challenges to it because there's the tactile thing that you miss about. I like picking up bits and cards. And I also like to be able to, if, there, if it's a game where you really need to keep track of what your opponents or what your teammates, depending on what kind of game it is, are doing, there are challenges still in the digital version. It is a little bit different, but I think it's a learning curve worth, worth, you know, worth doing, don't you? I agree. Yeah. yeah. And for both playing games and also prototyping and playtesting games, I, I can throw a game on Tabletopia for playtesting and, and playtest with anyone in the world or make that available for anyone in the world who isn't able to get together with their game group. And one added perk that I found is it lets me play with people that I wouldn't normally play with. Uh, my game night used to be restricted to people in St. Louis. Now I play with 
people in uh, all around the U.S. Uh, different time zones are a little bit more difficult, but it's wonderful to be able to play with a, a much broader range of friends than those who could physically show up at my house every Wednesday. And maybe that you wouldn't want showing up at your house every Wednesday. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's nice to have that group feeling, but still be in your space. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, when you when you look at how the hobby in general has been affected by this pandemic, how people are sort of using board games now to come together, it really is, there's a big transition, I think, now from the digital to the analog, which is sort of the antithesis of what we've been seeing over the past couple of decades. And I think you heard in the intro when I said, I have fallen really hard for this hobby. Um, to, I, I can't even and tell you to what degree, but are there a lot of people like myself that have had the digital experience that have been video gamers their whole lives, been a board gamer, dabbling, but once they get a taste of the social aspect of the beauty, the art, everything that goes into it, that falls so hard. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people. I feel like I'm not the only one. I, I don't think you are the only one. Oh, um, thank God. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I, I think a big part of it is uh, we spend so much time looking at screens in our lives now. And a lot of that's great. I, I, I love my, my two screens for my computer. I love my phone, but it's really nice when I, when I have a tabletop game to play and I can turn off that screen and just focus on the people and focus on the pieces in the game and, and something that's not a screen for a little while. Uh, that, that I think that, that goes a, a really long way. And during the pandemic in particular, I think like, uh, like puzzle sales went way up. Board yeah. game sales also went way up during the pandemic. Even though I think people were meeting with fewer people, they wanted something to do at home with those that they had easy access to. And so it, in, in a tough year, I think for a lot of people, uh, board game companies had pretty, uh, maybe historically good years uh, last year during the pandemic. Did you find it was hard to keep up production? Because as you said, I mean, yeah. as successful as you are and as successful as your games are, again, you know, Board Game Geek, Top Listed, so many games. Is it, it, yeah. it, people don't realize the size of your company. I think they assume when they hear Stonemaier Games, but it's a smaller operation. Was it challenging to keep games in stock, to keep the production line going when are, are a lot of your games made overseas where things were shut down? What was that like? What were the challenges like uh, to get your games out to everyone? Yeah, fortunately, yeah, our, our games are made in China. Um, and uh, when the pandemic initially struck, you know, China completely shut down. And I think that may have saved worldwide manufacturing for a lot of different products if they hadn't done that. Um, I, I'm sure that was very tough for the people in Wuhan in particular. Right. But it did save industries, including the board game industry, because if they hadn't done that, uh, we probably would have been shut down for quite some time. But fortunately, that was only about a month shut down, and they've been fully operational since then. Um, the Biggest impact I've seen lately over the last maybe four months is, is freight shipping. Freight shipping worldwide has uh, has slowed down to a crawl um, due to uh, shortage, uh, shortages of, of shipping containers, uh, backups at, at port, things like that. So that's more about the, the supply line than production itself, but uh, it has definitely had an impact on uh, how quickly we can get people the, the games that we're making. This is your Tech Report with Mitchell Whitfield and Mark Aflalo. I in Montreal, Mitchell in Los Angeles. We are in conversation with Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games. So much more to come in a moment. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back, Jamie. I want to talk about the publishing side of things. I want to talk about the tools that you use to keep yourself organized because it seems like you're a, a pretty busy gentleman. You guys at home, if you're enjoying this conversation, do let us know. Our email address is contact at yourtechreport.com. Of course, on all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you can head on over to Your Tech Report. And of course, don't forget us online. The website is yourtechreport.com. More with Jamie Stegmeyer after we take a quick break here on Your Tech Report. Your Tech Report will be right back. 
Welcome back to Your Tech Report. For gadget news and reviews, click to yourtechreport.com. We are back on Your Tech Report. Thank you guys for being here. If you're not following us, please do follow us. It is at Your Tech Report um, absolutely everywhere. We are in conversation with Jamie Stegmeyer, who is, uh, I guess, what, co-founder and CEO and everything at Stonemeyer Games. Uh, Jamie, um, you know... You do everything from coming up with the concepts to, you know, publishing to consulting. Um, Is there anything specific tech-wise that really keeps you organized and makes sure that you know what's going on in all aspects? Because I can't imagine there's just a couple things going on at once. Yeah, I mean, I I always have a few tabs open in Chrome that I use in terms (laughs) of apps. I I use Basecamp for project management. I use uh, Trello for ideas. I use Discord quite a bit. Um, Zoom, we're on Zoom right now, and uh, there's oh, and uh, Hootsuite uh, for for uh, social media management, uh, and Google. I use Google Docs quite a bit for for managing other things. One day yeah. there'll be one day there'll be one app to rule them all, right? We'll all we won't have <laughs> yeah. to worry about seventeen different tabs. Right. You know. You know, Jamie, you talk about social media, and I and I want to mention that um, because first of all, I have to thank you. Because, and this is a huge thank you, because a lot of times my wife will uh, take a look at, you know, digital statements and she'll come into the office when I'm recording and say, did you, did you buy another game? Is this, is another game? And I'll say, and, and quickly, Jamie, it comes out of my mouth so quickly. I'm like, honey, it's not my fault. This game has one of Jamie's favorite mechanisms. I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I've used that. And it's like, oh, okay. No, it doesn't really always oh, go that well. Okay. <laughs> but sometimes it goes that well. And basically it speaks to your presence on social media. And that's what I wanted to talk about because I think people would have, said it's fine if you were just using social media to promote yourself, to promote Stonemeyer Games, your latest release, that, that would there would be nothing wrong with that. You you have your own company, that would be but you don't. You use the platform to champion other people's games, to spread gospel about the industry, to talk about stuff that you love in the industry. So I feel like and to correct me if I'm wrong here, I almost feel like social media and the promotion is just as important to you on the broad, bigger picture. Promoting the hobby seems to be as important to you as promoting your own stuff. And I think that's something to really be applauded, honestly. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if it were not for all the designers and publishers that uh, not only came before me, but s- still operate and do in- inspiring things every day. Um, I, I'm constantly inspired by other other games, other other designers, other publishers. And so it feels good to me to elevate those games and elevate who I think maybe people in other industries might see as competitors, but I see them as peers and and people who have had such a positive influence on me. So yeah, I I love YouTube in particular is the place where I talk a lot about other game designs um, and uh, Instagram as well. I use that as a a way to share what I'm playing and what I'm excited about. Jamie, your newest game is Red Rising. Can you, can you tell people who have no idea what it's about? I know Mitchell's pre-ordered several copies, but can you tell, can you tell our audience? Two. You're two? limited to two, okay. and I only got two. One can for you, one for my brother. Well, yeah. Mitchell did call me and say, can you order like two for me on this account? I did not do that. that. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Can you, tell, can you tell our audience what it's about? Yeah, Red Rising is our, our first um, somewhat major IP game. Um, it's based on a book series by the same name, Red Rising, that, uh, that I fell hard for back in 2014, 2015, when the sequel came out. It's now a trilogy, and then a, a second trilogy is in the works. And I've wanted to make this game into a, a board game for, or wanted to make this book into a, a board game for a long time. Um, I failed a number of times trying to figure that out, but eventually with a co-designer, someone that uh, actually I now work with at Stonemaier Games, we figured it out and, uh, recently announced it and we're publishing this game. It is a, it's, a, it's a game that I've designed to appeal to fans of the books who aren't gamers and also to appeal to gamers who don't know about the books and that I hopefully will introduce the books to through the game. 
Do you have to get yeah. Do you have to get uh, sign off from the from the author and the publisher of the book in order to do something like this, or is that something you could just go off and just go with? Oh no, yeah, we we absolutely um, acquired the tabletop rights to the Red Rising world uh, from from Pierce Brown, the author, uh, and and have worked with him a, a little bit throughout the process, but also tried to respect his time as as his main focus is on writing the books. You know, Mark, that was a much better question than you think because there are plenty, the board game industry is sort of notorious for having homage style games and it's sort of an implied like Nemesis is great. It's a little bit like a movie that we've seen, but this is not the case. This is actually a licensed, complete IP, which is wonderful. And now I'm sort of going to use, as I've done in the past, and Mark knows this, and maybe you've seen a little bit of this too, Jamie, but using analogies sort of to get us where where I want to be. And that is back in, I think... It was a 2005, I think it was. I got a phone call that I was going to be the voice of Donatello in the next TMNT movie. And I was super excited. It's like, oh, because I love TMNT as a franchise. I, you know, I loved it. I love the toys. I love the, the cartoons, everything about it. And once the excitement wore off, uh, you know, a few days kicked in, you know, said, and I, it settled in with me. I was like, oh, this is really neat. Then I started thinking about it. I was like, holy cow, I'm going to be doing the voice of Donatello. And then I started feeling this, a little bit of pressure and a little bit of worry, like, oh, I hope I do this justice because not only did it have a rabid fan base, but for me being a fan of it, I didn't want to mess anything up. I wanted to make sure I was true to this idea that I had. Did you face a similar sort of like, this is great. Oh my God, what have I done? I hope I, I hope I get everything right. Did you have a similar feeling when you got, when you found out you were going to be doing Red Rising? Absolutely. I can completely relate to that. Yeah. Um, And it's one of the reasons that I've done, this is really the first IP that game that I've done and probably one of the very few that I'll do at Stonemaier Games because, uh, because I do love it so much, but at the same time, there are people who love it exponentially more. Like there are people who are in fan groups that talk about it every day, that think about it every day. And I wanted, I I was nervous about those fans. I, I wanted to make sure that we portrayed the characters in the game, hopefully close to how they pictured them, or at least not have, you know, the, the mole on the wrong side of their face or, 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 you know, just tiny little details. And so I, I worked with artists who knew the game, who the books, knew the books and the characters even better than I did. And that really, that really helped out. But yeah, I was absolutely, I felt that same nervousness that, that you did. I think people don't realize that there is a certain amount of pressure when you step into an existing franchise. And I think the board game, you know, the board, board game industry mirrors so many other things. I think people don't realize when you're talking about the board game hobby, it encompasses so many things. And it's an art form like movies and television can be, uh, like theater can be, where you're you're bringing all together. You're bringing story uh, with tactile bits and artwork. And when I think about your games as well, I, I think a lot about the artwork and the aesthetic and how different, you know, Wingspan is from and they're both gorgeous and they both have great part, but they're both different in so many ways. So the aesthetic and the art of a game is a very big point, especially when people are looking at boxes, which seems ridiculous looking at a box, but but that's the first thing that people see with a game. So it seems like it's important to you guys too, to you as well when you're making a game. Yeah, creative art direction is a huge part of of what I I do, what I think about every day, when I think about from the beginning of the design to the end. Uh, several of my games have been inspired by the art. Like the art came first, or at least started before I even started to work on the design. Um, so that that is a that's a that's a huge part of the process. And I agree. Even though we may not go into, uh, there are plenty of game stores that we do go into. I think, and we will still go into after the pandemic. But right. even just on, if we're, when we're shopping online, you see that little thumbnail of the box. That's, that's your pretty. first impression. Like you said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm also you know we talk about you know boxes and artwork. Uh, you've you've done a very naughty thing, which you know it's it's draining my wallet, which I love. Which you definitely appreciate that people like to bling out their games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I, I, by the way, I encourage people to go to uh, stonemeyergames.com and check out everything that not only Jamie has designed, but published and all the things that you can get for your games. Um, 
the, the blinging out of games, it seems to be like a big, a big thing. Everyone's putting out a lot of collector's edition. I, of course, got my collector's edition early when it comes to Red Rising. But you also give people the opportunity to sort of uh, a la carte their games if they want to. Maybe someone doesn't want a completely blinged out game. They just want to get the metal coins or they just want to get the really cool eggs, Cadbury or otherwise. So, you know, <laughs> it really is. It really has become a thing. Blinging out a game, I think, it just continues to grow and grow. And, and tying this to technology as well, one of the ways that we're able to do this is that we have, uh, we use Shopify to sell our products directly. Okay. We also have our products, or most of our products in retail and distribution, but we're able to offer those those kind of blinged out products um, directly to people through our web store based on exactly what they want. So they can pick and choose the, the ways they want to customize their game, like you said. And I, I think e-commerce, uh, direct e-commerce has, has really enabled that for companies like mine to sell directly to people. And we use fulfillment centers around the world too. That's another element of technology uh, that we're not just shipping from the US, we're shipping from the UK. We have a fulfillment center in Canada and in Australia. In Australia, that, So we're able to, to serve customers around the world at rates that they're familiar with instead of shipping everywhere from the US. Absolutely. And it streamlines the process and saves you guys money in the process because you're not producing things that aren't necessarily wanted or needed, or you don't have to worry about, I have to make this in case someone wants it. You're actually doing it. And you always say on the website, look, if you, if listen, don't worry about it. If you guys want it and it runs out, we'll make more. If we find any, if we have, if there's a market for it, we will do that. I think, I, I think customers really appreciate that. Um, I, I don't think I'd be doing my due diligence as an interviewer or as a gamer if I didn't ask you a couple of things. Number one, what was your gateway game little st louis question there what was your gateway game and what are you uh what are you playing right now my gateway game into the modern hobby was again that i think a lot of gamers probably share and that's Catan, or formerly known as settlers of Catan. right um that that was my gateway into, into the modern hobby as a kid i did play wonderful games scotland yard chess key to the kingdom risk played those classic games right um but as an adult it was Catan. And I blanked on the second question. What was your second question? No, no. The question was like, what, what are you playing right now? Because again, right now, I know, yeah. I know. And you're, you're so cool about it when you do your videos. You know, it's like I, any yeah. list that you make, I don't want to include Stonemaier games. I want to include other people's games. <laughs> but if you're playing your games now, we want to know about it too. But what are, what are you playing right now? What's at the table right now for you? Well, appropriate for the topic today. Just last night, I, this is the second anniversary of Wingspan's release. I, that's so right. Congratulations. Night. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, last night at my game night, we played uh, we, the digital version of Wingspan, the full digital version uh, from a company called Monster Couch. So we played that last night, had a great time playing that, lost miserably, but still had fun. <laughs> and then over this past weekend, I played Everdell, which is uh, oh, a great game. beautiful game. Um, that is, I think they actually have a version of it on Kickstarter right now, but I, I just got a version of it. I, had, I hadn't played it in many years and got it to the table this past weekend. What about you, that's, Mitchell? Uh, you know, that's funny. Uh, I'm glad you asked that. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for having me today. Uh, well, <laughs> my gateway game, and don't laugh at me because it was kind of ridiculous. My brother came to visit me from New York a couple of years ago, and he just happened to have uh, a little thin deck of cards in a little felt bag called Love Letter. And I think he had two versions of it. He had the regular version and he had the Archer version. And he said, oh, I have Adventure Time. I have a bunch of them. So we played, we played this game. And Mark, I don't think you've ever played Love Letter. It's a very simple, but I love games that are, and this is why I'm also excited about Red Rising. I like games that are simple to teach in concept, but have so much depth in terms of how, obviously, you know, love, love letters is a lot more simplified, but, uh, you know, two cards, you know, take one, <laughs> put one down and do whatever, do whatever the cards say. And for some, I don't know what it is, something about that hooked me and I went absolutely bonkers. So uh, what am I playing now? Well, funny enough, tonight on, tonight on Tabletopia, we will be playing, is it on, it is on Tabletopia, Red Rising, correct? It is. I think you is. do. Yeah, we will be playing my, my group, which is in New York, right? 
right now. My brother and his friends, we're going to be playing Red Rising tonight to celebrate, uh, you know, the impending release, the impending table presence of Red Rising. So I'm very excited okay. about that. But also, uh, as you said, Everdale and I believe Quacks of Quedlinburg, which I was yeah. surprised by how much I loved that game. It's really, you know, grabbing from the bag. I even got the plastic bits for that. But again, there are just so many things about the hobby that, you know, uh, the tactile feel of it. So, um, one more thing before we go related back to technology. Uh, we talk about, you know, the digitizing of games. And there's a difference between putting your game on a simulator, which takes the game in its entirety with all the parts and puts it, you know, in there. It's different when you talk about an app-based game. Yeah. Have, you, have you had challenges taking one of your games, translating it, and not just digitizing it, but translating it into an app and have to make compromises and think, okay, this, and have to really pick your battles of what you do, or have you able, been able to make smooth, perfect transitions into a digital version uh, for, let's say, iPad or iPhone? Well, fortunately, most of those challenges, there's certainly been many challenges, but I outsource all of that to very talented Oh, that's perfect. And so I think for the most part, they've done a fantastic job uh, translating that. Like I mentioned Wingspan last night, I just played Wingspan. And Wingspan, there are certain times where, when it's not your turn, when you gain a benefit based on something another player does. And the app, uh, just to allow for smooth play, smooth flow of play, uh, it doesn't let you gain that benefit until it's back to your turn. And so it really does focus on each player one turn at a time, even though you might get a benefit that the app is holding on to for you when it gets to you. So I thought that was a nice, it's a, not exactly the same as the tabletop game, but it's close right. enough and the effect is the same. Um, but uh, the main challenge that I've found as a publisher is the time that it takes. The developers, they do a wonderful job, but they often take a lot longer than they originally estimate right, uh, yeah. to, to make the game. So it's just a matter of patience and learning to be more it's patient. It's just a standing joke, I think, at this point with developers. You know, Yeah, no problem. That'll yeah. be done in two years, and it'll be done six years later, I think. <laughs> Jamie, if there was one piece of advice you could give younger Jamie um, when he first launched mm. the first game on Kickstarter, what would that be from your journey that you've come to today? Oh, there's so much, so many mistakes. <laughs> one, I'm trying to think of one that's tied to technology, and one that I guess doesn't have to be. Is, it is, doesn't have to be. This is about this is about you. To, okay. So yeah, yeah. Um, for viticulture in particular, I wish I had budgeted better. Like the the budget is so so important, um, and so and even today, like I, I I have a wonderful accountant who helps me with that. It's it's not my strong suit, but uh, <laughs> I I constantly need to remind myself that 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 budgeting is is really really important, um, so that you. Like I, I had a great first project on Kickstarter, could have easily gone really poorly if I had if I had added one more stretch goal and gone a little bit too far. And so, budgeting, I I would impart that wisdom onto younger Jamie uh, to budget more precisely and consistently. You know, it's it's like one one question opens up another. I also wanna wanna let people know, of course, you've done something really cool, which I I haven't seen other publishers or other designers slash publishers do. Well, because there aren't a lot like you, but uh, with Viticulture, you have put out uh, the Essential Edition. You know, both yes. of the game itself and the Tuscany expansion, which basically brings the the most you know the most popular aspects of basically the expansion into the main game, and then streamlines the and then basically I think you transitioned away from selling the traditional game, and you're now doing the essential edition. What went into making that decision? Because it's really cool, and it made people really happy that loved aspects of both the expansion itself and the main game. Yeah, part of it was uh, some of the mistakes I made on the original design. So the first edition was a fine game, but it, uh, it could have used more development, more blind playtesting, more, more time. And so I made a second edition. And then uh, after the second edition came out, one of, the, what I, one of my game design idols reached out to me, a guy named Uwe Rosenberg, who's oh, yeah. for 
many, many wonderful, very popular games. He reached out to me and it was one of the best emails I've ever gotten because he emailed me and said, you know, Jamie, I played Viticulture. I played it with Tuscany. I really enjoyed it. If you ever make a new version of this, here's what I would do. So he offered a little bit of advice and uh, I, I couldn't ignore the, the advice of one of the best game designers in the world. So that's when I, I took exactly as you said, I, I took some of the elements from, from the original version of Tuscany, combined them with Viticulture and made what we've called the Essential Edition, which is the version of Viticulture that we printed for the last six years now. No, that's fantastic because a lot of people have been saying, you know, I actually got Viticulture for this past Christmas. My son got it for me and then my daughter got me the metal coins. I'm telling you, it's Stonemeyer. Oh, cool. I also <laughs> I also want to remind people, it, it is StonemeyerGames.com, correct? I don't want to say anything yeah. incorrectly. Head over to Stonemeyer Games. You'll see everything that Jamie is doing there. Also, you can become, and Jamie did not ask me to talk about this, so don't be embarrassed. I became a Stonemeyer champion, which is for $15 a year. It's, it's a one-time fee. You get 25% off anything that you buy, any game you buy. And I can tell you from having having ordered Red Rising, uh, it pays for itself with the first purchase. Not only that, not only does it benefit us, if you've seen Jamie on social media, he puts a lot of effort into his YouTube videos, into content creation. It also helps Jamie. And you know the size of the company now. He's kind of a one-man band with some help, but there, there's a lot of stuff going on. So definitely being a champion helps everything that Stonemeyer Games and Jamie in particular is doing. Jamie, I can't tell you, I don't know if you can tell, I've been babbling for maybe our longest interview ever, 35 minutes. We really appreciate your time. We'd love to have you back, not just to talk about technology, but just to satisfy, you know, my, my gaming Jones, we'd love to have you back when your next game comes out and just to, just to chat games with you. It's been a pleasure. We really appreciate you coming on. The pleasure has been all mine. I, I really appreciate that. I'd be happy to come back. And, and thank you for saying that about, about the champion program in, in our website. Yeah. Thank you so much. That is Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, by the way, guys, you want to save some money on your next board game? Head on over to Stonemeyer Games and use the promo code, which is your tech report five, and you'll save five bucks on your next order. We'll chat with you again next week. Stick around. You've been tuned in to Your Tech Report. Join us again next week for another edition. And be sure to follow Your Tech Report online. Email us, contact at yourtechreport.com. Follow us on Twitter at Your Tech Report. Like us on Facebook.com slash Your Tech Report. For the latest in breaking tech news and reviews, yourtechreport.com. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.